Welcome to Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. We're so glad that you are listening with us today, and we hope that this message is a blessing. Yeah, as a, as a storyteller, sometimes I get to go and, and, and speak at different conferences, events, and churches, and so on. And sometimes if, if people see you speak, the guest speaker, they'll say strange things to you. So I was at this one event, this lady came up to me and she said, has anyone ever told you how handsome you are? And I said, well, no. And she goes, there's a reason for that. So, I mean, you just don't, you don't know. And so I was at an event up in Wisconsin uh, speaking uh, a number of years ago. And, and I got up and I started to tell jokes. Now, the problem was that no one had notified this audience that you were supposed to laugh at my jokes. And so the more I spoke, the, l- the less they laughed. And so finally I said, folks, it's been scientifically proven that if you feel like laughing and you don't do it, that laughter will settle down inside of you and widen out your hips. And they didn't laugh. And so then, I probably shouldn't have said this, but looking back, I don't necessarily regret it. I said, folks, and looking around this room, I can see there are a few of you who have not been laughing enough, and they didn't laugh. And so I had 45 minutes to go, and from there, it just went downhill. And so you never know what's going to happen when you get up and and speak to a group, but, uh, but I've been thinking about what to share today, and really, uh, something kind of surprises me in, in the scripture verse we're going to look at in a moment. And so, um, if, you, if you have a Bible, I'll be jumping around a little bit, but we put some verses in your uh, worship, worship guide, but um, I'd just like to read you a couple of verses from Revelation uh, 21, and uh, verses 1 through 4, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so I was reading that, and something really took me by surprise. Some of it didn't. Um, For for instance, where it says, uh, neither shall there be uh, death anymore, or, or mourning, or crying, or pain for the former things have passed away. Those things don't really surprise me. I mean, when you think about heaven, you think about paradise, you think about being in the presence of God forever, you think, well, there's probably not gonna be any pain and death and so on like that. But what caught me by surprise was where it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I started thinking about it, it's like, don't you think that after you've entered eternity, that after you're in the presence of God, you wouldn't be crying anymore. Don't you think that once you've gone to to be in this new heaven, this new earth, why would it say that he will wipe every tear from our eyes? I mean, you might say, well, Steve, it's just a figure of speech. It means he'll comfort you and be with you forever, and maybe that's exactly true, or maybe it means what it says. I mean, maybe some people 
have suffered so much, been so alone, so filled with grief, so hurt in this life, that they enter into eternity with tears still in their eyes, but only for a moment, only long enough for Jesus to walk over and wipe that tear away. It's a love story. And it says, he, God has prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, his, his church, his people. I'm a, I'm a thriller writer, so I write mainly suspense novels. So I've written books on how to tell Bible stories to preschool children, and I write serial killer novels. So my wife says it's kind of like inviting, in, inviting Stephen King over to do a puppet show for your kindergarten class. So it's kind of what I do for a living. And and so I had this uh, magazine called Romantic Times Magazine reviewed some of my books and they liked the book. So my buddy said, you're a romance writer. I said, I'm not a romance writer. I'm so spent. He said, no, you're a romance writer. I may not be a romance writer, but I know a couple things about writing romances. If you write a romance novel, you have to focus on jaws and cheekbones. If you read a romance novel, the women will always have high cheekbones. You're, you're never going to read a romance novel where it says she had such lovely low cheekbones. It's just not going to happen. And men will always have jaws, strong jaws, broad jaws, lantern jaws. I don't know what a lantern jaw is. Maybe he had a goatee, lit it on fire. But men will always have jaws and women cheekbones. And then people will do stuff with their eyebrows. They'll waggle their eyebrows, wiggle their eyebrows, lift, lower, dive. Ladies, if you ever meet a guy and you go out on a date and he starts waggling his eyebrows at you and admiring your cheekbones run far away. So, so, so romance you know, novels, um, I know a little bit about, but uh, I know that this romance... Scripture is a love story and has a happy ending where the bride and the groom come together forever. Now, um, but it doesn't mean that Jesus, when he lived on this earth, was always happy. Uh, in fact, in Isaiah 53, 3, it says, as, as a prophecy about Jesus, it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You say, hey, wait, wait a minute, he's a man of sorrows? In John 15, Jesus says, if you remain in my love, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. So how does that work? How is he a man of sorrows and a man of complete joy? In Psalm 1611, it says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus is described as a man of sorrow and a man of joy. How could that be? Like, how does that work? Well, I think it's because he saw the world as it really is. I mean, there's no, no pretending. You know, one thing, uh, there's an, an author named G.K. Chesterton who wrote a book in the, back in the day called Orthodoxy. And in his book, Orthodox, he says, Christians are more pessimistic than the pessimists and more optimistic than the optimists. You say, what is he talking about there? Well, pessimists might look at the world and see it gloomy and gray and, and sad, and, and, but, but Christians will look at the world and say, yeah, and guess what? The grief and the pain goes even deeper than you've ever imagined because eternity is at stake. And then you have the optimists who look at the world and say, just follow your heart. Everything will work out fine. But guess what? Some people followed their heart and it doesn't work out. 
fine. And, and so we look at the world and we say, yes, joy is available and everlasting joy can await you. So in this sense, more pessimistic than the pessimist, more optimistic than the optimist. It's like our world is not a middle-class world. It really is a place where people live in garbage dumps and people live in palaces. It really is a place where people suffer the worst kind of abuse and mothers sacrifice for their, for, their, for their babies in ways that we can hardly imagine. This is our world. It's both, right? It's a paradox. There's an old word named, uh, uh, there, there, not a, uh, there's a word called agathocacological. My daughter, when she was in sixth grade, was studying for a spelling bee, and one of her words was agathocacological. I'm like, what does that mean? Look it up. It means consisting of both good and evil. It's kind of an interesting word. We are agathocacological people. We consist, this is an agathocological world. It consists of both good and evil. And Christianity looks at, at life with both eyes open. Some people close one eye to the pain. They want to always look at the bright side of life. And, and I get that because it's hard to look at the pain. It's hard to look in the eyes of people that are suffering and hurting and, and alone. So some people will close one eye to that. Others will close one eye to the glory and the wonder and the grace and the beauty and the love, and the mystery of life. And all they see is just sadness around them. They're hard to be with. They'll walk around, they're Christians maybe, and they'll say, yeah, I'm filled with joy. And you're thinking, if you're filled with joy, why don't you notify your face? You know, it's like, I don't know, maybe filled with formaldehyde, but man, you're not filled with joy. So so, but Christianity, we look at life with both eyes open. There's no more pretending here. There's no wishful thinking. There is deep sorrow because of our world and, and amazing joy. So Jesus, no one ever experienced as much sorrow as Jesus did looking at the pain and suffering that sin causes in the world. And no one has ever looked at the world and felt so much joy at what God has done and what God offers through, through his grace. And so this is why we can read this verse that says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's not here to limit our joy. He's there to set it free, to expand it. So a number of years ago, I was asked to speak at a church, a different church that we were going to at the time, and and our pastor asked if I would speak on joy. So if you know anything about speaking at a church, one of the cool things that you always try to come up with is a good title for your message. So I came up with this title, Getting Rejuvenated. I thought that's a good title. People are going to like that title. They're going to remember that. And then you come up with a three-point message, a three-point sermon. And so mine was joy, J-O-Y, Jesus offers you joy. So I was like, I, you know, it's sort of the secret addiction of a lot of pastors to come up with cool acronyms and stuff. So I'm like, I'm on the right track. But the fact of the matter was, I had done a lot of studying on joy, done a lot of reading in scripture on joy, and, and I had kind of this outline, I had kind of this lecture on joy, but as I was driving to church, I was thinking, man, this, this is going to put everyone to sleep. It's going to put me to sleep, too, and I'm, and I'm speaking it. And so I pulled into Food City to put some gas in my car, and I had an idea. Bypassed the gas. I went inside, and I bought a couple of small bottles of Joy Concentrate dishwashing liquid and one great big bottle. 
And I went uh, past the gas, uh, gas and zoomed to church. And, and in church, I got one of, the, one of those musician's stools, and I put a big bowl from the church kitchen on top of a small bowl inside of it. And then I found one of those knives that should never appear in a church kitchen, but maybe a psycho movie, one of those big knives, right? And so I hid the joy, and I hid the knife in the lectern. So I got up and I started speaking. Everyone's looking at the, like, what's the bowl and why, why is there a you know, thing there? And so I started speaking to them about stuff that drains joy from our lives, like obligation, feeling like you should be doing something else, regret, wishing you had done something differently, worry, hoping that you'll, you'll do enough resentment to other people who've, who've gotten, you know, maybe what you were hoping to get. So I'm, I'm talking about all these joy drainers, and I pulled out the small bottle of joy and the knife. I held them up, and I said, now, if I do this, I don't want any of you to call me a killjoy. And a couple of people laughed. They actually laughed. So I knew I was in good hands. I took the knife, and, and I held a bottle of joy. I said, you know what? Stuff like envy. And I stabbed the bottle of joy, pull it out. I said, frustration, grudges, children. <laughs> so I'm stabbing the bottle and joy is kind of oozing out or in some cases spurting out into the congregation. Some of the women in the front row were holding up purses as shields. A couple of the older members of the congregation began busily filling out the comment cards. <laughs> and I'm squeezing it, talking about, you know, it's so hard life and it's filled with sadness and pain and the more the deeper you look at it the more joy can drain from your life but then then I said all right then I took the big bottle of joy and I had the punctured one I said do you know in scripture it says God wants to fill us with joy he wants to anoint our heads with the oil of joy it says he wants to overwhelm us it says he wants to clothe us with joy I said how many of you like to be filled overwhelmed, clothed, drenched with God's joy. So I took the punctured bottle, and I'm pouring the big bottle of joy in, and it's just kind of overflowing, even through the little holes, the puncture holes flowing over like that. I said, that's what God wants to offer you. I said, you know, in John 15, Jesus said, if you remain in or abide in my love, my joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. Later in... Um, in John 16, he actually says, you'll have sorrow now. He's talking about when he dies, but you will, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one can take away your joy from you. If joy was the same as happiness, it would depend on happenings. Happiness comes from the same word, happenings. So if things are happening well, you feel happy and if they're not, you don't. But joy is different. And, and Jesus wouldn't say, no one can take away your joy from you if it depended on circumstances. So I was talking about all this stuff. His forgiveness is available to us, his pardon, his love, and his joy. So I poured it over there, and, and honestly, I have to tell you, I was feeling kind of good. I was feeling like, okay, they're going to remember that message. I'm, I'm a pretty good speaker. And so this is going through my mind. And so I, I went into the church kitchen to clean everything up and get it ready for the next service, which started in 25 minutes in my other small bottle of joy. And as I'm cleaning out the bowl with the joy in it that had, had come out of the pierced bottle, some of the joy concentrates splattered onto the front of my pants. And it did not look like joy. 
on the front of my pants. So I decided to do what seemed like the logical thing to do at the time. I decided to wash it off. I got a washcloth, start scrubbing my pants. Now, to a man who does not normally do the dishes, the word concentrate <laughs> means to focus your attention. It does not mean to foam up your pants. So the more I'm scrubbing my pants, the more it's foaming up. The door to the kitchen opens up. This guy looks in. I said, hey, how you doing? He walked out the door. I took a dry paper towel. That just spread it out all over. I said, I can't go up and speak like this. So I went in, as I remember, I went into our bathroom, and we had one of those hand dryers where you punch it, 600-degree air comes out to dry your hands. So I'm, I'm standing there literally underneath the hair, a hand dryer like this, trying to dry off my pants. Door opens up. It's the same guy from before. <laughs> he looks at me. I said, oh, don't worry about this. I'm preaching today. I just spilled some of my joy. But don't worry, I've got plenty more. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. He walked out. I found out he was a visitor to our church. Always wondered what kind of service he thought we had going on there. And my pants are steaming up, but it's still not dry. And I was like, I can't do this. I only have 12 minutes before our service begins. So I untuck my shirt. I'm a big guy. I'm six foot three. I start walking around the lobby of our church, going up to guys who look my size. I'm saying, excuse me, I'm preaching today. Could I borrow your pants? And I couldn't find anyone who wanted to um, switch outfits with me. So I thought the only thing I can do is drive home, change clothes, and get back. Now, we were singing three songs before I was supposed to get up to speak. And it's a 12-minute drive from our house to the church if you drive like a Christian. And so I hopped into the car and I took off, driving at a rate of speed that was biblically incorrect. And only then did I look at the gas gauge. Now, at that moment, when I looked at the gas gauge and I saw it on zero, I remembered that I had not filled up with gas earlier that day. And I started praying, God, help me get home. God, I pray that you would help me make it home. And, and so I have to tell you, this is back in the day. This is back in the day when, when cars were made with, with CD holders. A CD is like the circular thing with the shining and music comes out of it. They replaced cassette tapes, which I remember, which replaced eight-track tapes, which I remember, which replaced rocks. We would just bang them together to make music back in the day. And so, so this was the day before gluten allergies. Gluten had not been invented yet, and neither had cell phones. And so I didn't have a phone with me. I'm driving home thinking, God, help me make it home. I rushed inside, grabbed a pair of pants off the pile. I did not realize which pile it was. I jumped back into the car, raced back to church, and I made it in time. And I made, well, I made it with the gas. And I'm like, yes, just like the woman in the Old Testament whose jar was filled with olive oil and it, and it didn't go out. I'm like, this is a this is a miracle of biblical proportions. And I went inside to change. And the, they're singing the last verse of the last song before I'm supposed to get up to speak. And so I went into the bathroom, trying to put the new pants on. I realized it was the Goodwill pile. The pants were four inches too small around the waist, two inches too short, but I didn't have a choice at this moment. I put them on, I tucked my shirt in, kind of walked out on stage. I said, Afterwards, I went home. I called my friend. I said, man, it was a travesty. I had a joy in my pants. He said, you're a storyteller. It wasn't travesty. It was material. 
And so then I sat down and I watched a little television and I, I saw a story about wars and rumors of war, saw a story about shootings, saw a story about a missing woman who'd been found dead, saw stories about pain and suffering in our world. And it reminded me of this old poem that I'd seen at one time and it said, Lord, give me eyes that I may see lest I as people will should walk by someone's calvary and think it just a hill. Sometimes we do it, don't we? We walk by others' calvary and we think it just a hill. I said, God, help me to realize that the joy that you offer is, is, is deep and it's, and it's, and it's uh, deep enough to actually help us through the toughest times we may face in our lives. You know, Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It doesn't say it was joyful on the cross. This is, again, is suffering. But for the joy set before him, what joy? I'll tell you what joy. The joy of wiping the tears away from the eyes of his beloved. That's the joy. That's the joy. Do you have tears? Maybe inside, do you have pain? Do you have drained joy from obligations and frustration, from regrets and from guilt and from shame and from all these things piled up in your heart and you're saying, God, I know what that would be like to enter into eternity with tears because I have a lot of them. Guess what? He knows. He cares. He came to wipe those, those tears away. And that's why he went to the cross to offer us the opportunity to be with him forever, to be in the presence of full, complete, and never-ending uh, joy. So one time I was praying, uh, and I was kind of in a woe is me mode, and I was praying about something, and I was like, God, what? Do you want me to give up my happiness? And God doesn't always speak to me, don't get me wrong, but there was a moment where I felt like an impression of certain words that came, and they didn't come from me. And so I was like, God, what do you want me to do? Give up my happiness? And the impression that I had was this guy saying, um, I'd, would you be willing to give up your unhappiness? And I wonder if maybe some of you today are like stuck in that place, um, stuck in that unhappiness place. God wants joy to be the default setting for our lives. Doesn't mean we'll always feel happy, but it means you have a place to go back to. Not disappointment as the, as the default setting, but joy and the promise of being with him. So there's a story told in Ethiopia about this landowner who owned all this land at the base of a high mountain. And on the, on the top of the mountain, there was even snow. And this landowner once said, I, I don't think anyone could survive on that mountain for a whole night without a fire or clothing or food or, or, or companionship. I don't think anyone could survive. And so his shepherd said, really? And, and the landowner said, yes, in fact, if anyone could do it, I would be willing to give them half of my land. So the shepherd said, you know what? I can do that. I'll do that. I'll spend a night up on the mountain by myself to get half of the land. So the date was set. But in truth, as it got closer, the shepherd started to get scared. He went up to his friend and he said to his friend, look, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to survive. And, and his friend said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go up on a nearby mountain and I'll start a fire. And when you get cold throughout the night, look across the valley and you'll see the fire and the thought of it will warm you. And, 
And when you get lonely, look across the valley and you'll see the fire and you'll remember that I'm there, that I'm your friend. And when you get hungry, you can look across the valley and you'll see the fire and it'll remind you that come morning we'll have breakfast together. So the night came and he went up on the mountain by himself all alone in the cold and the snow. And sure enough, he looked across and there as he was cold, he saw the fire and then uh, it warmed him. And as he became lonely, he thought of his friend on the distant hill. And then some clouds came in and he couldn't see the fire in that moment, but he knew it was there. He knew it was there. And as he thought of the fire, he thought, come, come morning, we'll have breakfast together. And so he survived the night and he had breakfast with his friend and he received his inheritance. And Christianity is a way of looking through the night because I'm here to tell you there is a friend on a distant hill and he has lit a fire and he has made a promise. And it is the promise that um, Christianity is it's not a distraught religion. It's a victory dance on the rim of eternity and there's a groom waiting for his bride. He's there with, with arms open wide and with a hand ready to wipe every tear from your eye. No matter where you are or what you've been through, his love is enough to wipe that tear away. Let's pray. God, the truth is we all experience joy drainers in life, in this, this tough life, and you went through it. You knew that. You were a man of sorrows, but also a man of full and complete joy. You invite us to experience life more deeply, to experience more sorrow when we look at the pain of the world, but more joy when we look at your grace. So God, help us to connect with that joy, the joy that is full and complete and forever. Lord, I ask that you would remind us that you are there, on that distant hill, and that no matter what we're going through, and even the darkness, you are there waiting. And in the morning, we'll have breakfast together. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about us, you can check out our social media or website. Grace and peace to you.